Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, here with a guest by the name of Matt Bua. And I thought we were just going to have a simple talk about his book on stone walls when I started surfing the internet and finding out he's a musician, he's an artist, he looks at life in a really unusual way (laughs) through and through all of his different work, and welcome. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So the book that brought me here was called Talking Walls, and he's going to be speaking in within the hour up in the Byrne Library about this book. And just reading through the parts of it that I was able to, it seems less like what I expected. It's not a scientific exploration. It's not anthropological. It's kind of almost poetic. I feel like you looked at things that you saw in front of you and thought about them. Just kind of explain how that process unfolded. Well, it was uh, 10 years ago and I moved up from the city and I got hold of this land in Catskill, New York. And I was right off the bat blown away by the landscape, the streams and the running piles of stones and the large boulders. And uh, it was constantly asking everyone, you know, what are these things? What do you know about them? But it wasn't until 2012, a child, a girl on the way, daughter, that um, I kind of stumbled onto these large cairns that are stacked stones uh, arrangements when I was kind of wandering through my neighbor's land. And, and being an artist, I did about four years of research. That was a you know crash course. Once I saw those things, then I went to my neighbor. And I'm like, what's that book you were trying to tell me about called Manitou? Um, and and as an artist, you're allowed to just uh, go across all mediums and and collect and 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 look at it and ruminate. So that's what this book turned into, like a four year rumination on the wall. So I well, that's what it is, and it has in it little bits of poetry. I'll read one because it just got me thinking in a way that I hadn't before. Early on, he quotes from William Blake, and everybody I'm sure is familiar with There Is No Natural Religion, but I'm going to read this because I, I have some questions about this as it relates strangely to stone walls because I have to admit, I think I was not very thoughtful about stone walls. I, of course, have seen them growing up in this area my whole life, and believed what I think is the cultural norm on stone walls, that the European settlers cleared their land, and I know my land is rocky because we've cleared some of it, and they piled up their walls, and they made fences, and now I'm kind of wincing when I say that because they wouldn't make very good fences. They're kind of low and not very fence-like. But um, here's the Blake. Reason or ratio of all we have already known is not the same that it shall be when we know more. He who sees the infinite in all things sees God. He who sees the ratio only sees himself only. And I read that and I thought, oh, I don't think of myself as like this Europe centric person that only sees walls the way I've been told. So what, tell me 
you started by how you had this discovery on your own land, but what made you follow it and where did it lead you? Well, the, the first thing I did was I bought all the books by the people uh, who wrote about the history of the stone walls, uh, the Robert Thorson Stone by Stone, Susan Allport's Sermon in Stone, uh, Reading the Forested Landscape by um, Tom Wessel. And I was excited because I was going to pull out all the primary sources, the, the historic references of everything they found out that would support the, the Europeans built all the stone walls. And they all scratched their head. Eric, Eric Sloan, who wrote Reverence for Wood, he has a lot of comments about the stone walls, but of course he has no references. Um, Robert Thorson you know, uses the one single reference that she was able to find, uh, use, uses Susan Allport's single reference of a European describing in their diary building the stone walls. So that was the first kind of revelation is that there's really little or no historical documents, primary sources of Europeans building the stone walls. And uh, that's called negative evidence. Um, and if you find nothing, therefore, it must have been too mundane. Therefore, all the walls were built by the Europeans. It seems like not a very good log logic to the argument. Um, and... From there, then it was, well, what's the history of archaeology in the United States? And then you find out, well, Smithsonian's first book they published was in the 1850s, Squire and Davis, Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley. And it's a very um, brief, you know, archaeological history. When the archaeologists were here, they were just focused on Egypt and everywhere else. And what that book does is connect the lithic landscape, the stone landscape, the ancient monuments, uh, so to speak, with a world lithic culture. And uh, later in the 1880s, Smithsonian had to revamp that vision and, and with, um, with the 12th annual report um, to kind of say that, well, that it's all done by the Native Americans. Um, there, there wasn't people freely traveling the seas prior to Columbus, uh, building stone structures like they were in Ireland, like they were in India, like they were all over the world. So they, so, so it's sort of like with music. I mean, the same kind of instruments developed around the world, even though there weren't people traveling between those parts, it was just sort of a human universal need or function. Um, well, Squire and Davis in the ancient monuments of the Mississippi Valley was saying, wow, look at all this stuff. Like, couldn't it be connected to this world culture of building mounds and building this and building that? But that kind of went against Columbus was the first, you yeah. know, it kind of supports maybe the Vikings or it supports the Phoenicians and it supports the Carthaginians and all these people freely sailing around the world. So there had to be um, kind of a uh, another book um, to, well, straighten the course, Yeah, straighten the course and get, you know, as they say, he who controls the past controls the future, that whole like. 1984 quote um it, yeah i had to get the storyline straight but that also interesting enough um part of the the sub subtitle to my book is casting out the post-contact stonewall building myth so post-contact is of course after contact is when columbus after the europeans yeah after yeah. the europeans but what is that myth well 
Smithsonian also had to say, along with Robert Thorson, that the Native Americans didn't have a stone building tradition. They didn't possess the lintel, which is like a stone slab that went across. A door? Yeah, a door, like Stonehenge is the lintel, is the pieces that go across the the uprights, um, and they left the stones unturned. We came, it's the pristine myth that uh, we came and it was a complete wilderness and there was no humanized landscape. Um, so that that's kind of part of this myth that has since been overturned. I mean, when people came to Boston, it was called the Shemont Peninsula, named after the living waters, but it was treeless and all materials had to be brought over. So that points to a landscape that was managed and cleared and utilized and the water was clearly very important if the whole name of Boston was called the living waters. Um, so... As you're like working your way kind of backwards through time and going through sources, where did you land on this idea? Because another part that's, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say, part of my education is this idea that, you know, the Native Americans in this area were hunters and gatherers. You know, they weren't um, farmers, that they wouldn't have had a need or a, um, their, their housing was the long house. It was not a, you know, like a permanent stone structure and their living means didn't lend itself. So it's like reinterpreting that society as well. How does, how does that jive? Well, um, the, uh, Arthur Parker, who wrote the archeological history of New York state, 1924, who was part um, Native American himself said that concept of the nomad is untrue for the, the Native American people. They clearly, a place like Cahokia, which is outside of St. Louis, it was a truncated pyramid that was going to be larger than Giza if it was completed. It's still there. They called it Monk's Mound. But these are large um, cities that were being built that were clearly like these major trade routes um, uh, Green County historian Bob Halleck, you, you know, in my area, I'm from Catskill, but you know, the first thing the Europeans did was, well, there were these plagues and there were these diseases that wiped out a lot of the population. So why not take over the farmland that was being worked up until that time? So there were large tracts of land that were being farmed and there were early references to trees grow here and there like in our parks back home by um his name is going to escape me but you're early european so there was this humanized landscape charles mann's book 1491 that a lot of people are familiar with doesn't quite go as far in the northeast he says there was large burning and, and agricultural that was like a a practice that was um used in this area but my book the punchline or what really started to click for me when i was buying you know all these books was when i started buying books about the stone walls of mexico the, the prehistoric stone walls of of south america the stonework and the canal system of the southwest was this was all a lot of these 
uh, stoneworks and um, systems were there to channel water, to utilize water. The world's largest man-made irrigation system, it was built by the Hohokam, which is where Phoenix was. That's that, thus the the bird rising out of the flames of past civilizations that was we were able to settle phoenix because of this irrigation system that was built but when they asked the hopi people that were there at the time well who did this massive irrigation system that's the hohokam the vanished ones or who did these amazing stone cliff dwellings oh those are the anastasi the ancient ones so in the own native american people's history there was always people there long before them so that's another kind of thing is like so that's another theory for the east northeastern because we i think we generally think of the western native americans as being builders but not the eastern but the idea is there was a layer and more ancient layer right it was well so i know you have pictures in your book and we're not visual here right. but could you just describe some of the things you found on your own land um and what what it led you to think about them yeah what? just uh a lot of the stone walls and stonework once you look at them hydraulically speaking like what if this is channeling water well many of the stone walls terminate at streams and marshes i have these marsh waterlands that we know through primary sources were important for food production to the native americans uh, low stonework that basically make us um, that keep the dirt from in, impounding into the waterways. Like, so it's a small stone wall that encircles this marshland. Um, I have these large double sweeping walls that come off this high hill that then channel down into the stream and like oh wow this is a major this would be channeling water and during the spring i can watch it it still actually works and it's still being used and then where i was tapping in i i kind of tapped into part of a wall because i heard water running in there and i was getting water from to for my drinking on my land and then after doing the research, I went further down. There's actually the exit. It's like laid up stonework, and there's an exit in the hill where the water comes out, this spring in the side of the hill. Um, and then I started collecting maps from my local um, Green County um I guess tax map area, these maps that go all the way back to the early 1700s when people, the first land patent maps and what references to the stonework were there. Like they, they would call these heaps of stones or old, old ditch, you know? And so an old ditch in 1717 for Kiskatone, which is on the Western edge of Catskill, uh, you know, that's an old, that in, in, uh, means old ditch somebody dug this ditch or they would then call them devil's ditches and and we'd have the devil's tombstone up in the catskill mountains and so a lot of these places that had native um, connections they would then kind of say these were heathens that were doing the devil's work so a lot that's why a lot of these names like the devil's tombstone you know devil's ditches and all that were kind of given to these pre-existing uh, alterations Structures. to the landscape. Yeah, and you also raise in your book some, I don't know if religious is the right word, but some maybe spiritual or um, possible, like you mentioned a place in Massachusetts where, um, is it the summer solstice? I can't remember. But where there, 
it's sited in such a way that where the sun rises at the solstice is exactly where this monument was made, which, you know, brings yeah. thoughts of Stonehenge or some of these other structures that are more well-known. Yeah, um, even in Kingston, New York, I, there's a bunch of large protruding stones sticking out of the ground. But when you look what, uh, look east, there's a big notch in the Berkshires where the winter solstice sunrise comes up, and there's no other stones like this. And you get into the stone chamber conversation. Hundreds and hundreds are in Putnam and Dutchess County right outside of New York and probably around our listeners right now and in Vermont. And a lot of those people went around and did studies of all those and a lot of them open to the winter solstice sunrise. Uh, but they'll try, somebody will try to say that they're all root cellars, even though there's no ventilation, there's a dirt floor, no sign of a door. Um, they're far away from any other pre-existing European structure, but these were built all over the world. Uh, you know, it goes further. People did do studies with a lot of these chambers and there's, you can get into the electromagnetic frequency like EMFs where there's char there's charged areas around these stone chambers and they actually, some people, what? Well, just from either the the site on the land, uh, also the stacking of the stone, there's a little bit of something called piezo, the piezoelectric effect inside uh, bluestone or inside especially granite, there's a large bit of quartz content. And if you've ever had a crystal set radio, that's like obvious, that's a piece of small quartz under pressure. Uh, creating electricity. So what they did is they took these uh, seeds, they took and they had their control group where they didn't uh, do this, but they'd put them in the stone chambers for a specific amount of time. And those seeds produced like three times the amount. They got much larger than the seeds that weren't in there. So that gives some type of functional um, potential reason, reason. Of, of why these would be built. And then you look at a place like Makapichu, uh, in like, well, how, how did they um, keep people alive? Maybe they had knowledge of, you know, how to make the most out of their seeds and putting their, this, these earth energies into, into use. Telluric energy is what this energy that runs through the earth. Um, so that's, you know, I'm yeah. kind of running around. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, just because you're in Gilderland right now, and Henry Rowell Schoolcraft is from Gilderland, and you write a lot about him. And you had mentioned him in your book, and I'm just trying to now remember the reference. It had to do with um, his early look at what the Native American societies were doing. And can you just, do you remember any of your research on him or anything about him? Because our listeners are very, very familiar with him. Oh, really? Well, he's a, you know, His, great, um, I mean, was he part Native American? Uh, but, he married, he married a Native okay, American. Okay. And he lived on Willow Street here in Gilderland. Oh, wow. And I've recent, recently written about his house. A young couple has restored it. And, you know, his... Poet, his work was credited in Longfellow's poem, and you know he did a lot of the early right. Antioria was his. I think his name. He tried to call the Catskill Mountains. He said that was the native name yeah. for the Catskill Mountains. Well, I, I mean, I, I I have his books, and I you know these massive. I was so happy. I thought I was buying a reprint, but it was a kind of a first edition oh, with color. Wow. 
color plates and uh, one one image that I used that was really important it's it says ancient watchtower and it's a circular dry stack stone well that goes into the ground at the t- top of a hill and it's a beautiful painting so as I was walking around and finding all these dry stack stone circular wells that go into the ground that in my area were quarried into bedrock you know you think like I come from North Carolina. Oh, if you want to dig for water, you just dig in the sand and you don't hit rock. But here you go about a foot down and you instantly hit rock and you go another foot down and you hit bedrock. So that was a really important discovery. Um, I just, I just, I feel like I have a lot of, you, you know, love and respect for Henry Rose Schoolcraft um, just because of these amazing books and research and I haven't even got fully into it but yeah. there was a lot of great confirmation from from his work so I didn't I didn't even know that he was from this area so as you look back and you have this collection of old books you've found and now you've written a book yourself what do you hope your book will do for either the current you know, civilization or going forward? I mean, what, what, what do you hope will come out of it? Well, uh, there's Fred Allen Wolf. He's a physicist and he has a great quote, quote, the real trick in life is not to be in the know, but to be in the mystery. And I feel like once you cast off this colonialized vision of what we've been told and just start to potentially look at this stonework as if maybe it wasn't built in the last 400 years, um, that it goes much further back, it, it becomes a sacred, beautiful landscape that's integral to channeling and utilizing the, the the spiritual aspects of water. Not to even you know give it that flamboyant like water is life, and and if these walls are integral, like maybe it's you, we might not be so quick to destroy it. And that was one of the things that Squire and all these other people, Henry Rose Schoolcraft, it's these utter destruction of the pre-existing landscape. Um, And I mean, we haven't even got into like when they finally counted the walls in 1871 for the Northeast, they counted 252,000 miles, which is more than going. You make just the case that it's practically impossible. In practical terms, it physically couldn't be done. Yeah, I mean, upstate New York, it was a very short farming period. The second the Erie Canal and the trains were built, it's... You, you know, you can look at the numbers and historians in this area know how many people were living, but it was quickly abandoned. So, but there was a, a farm panic. Uh, wheat prices crashed 60% by 1870. And already there were 95,000 miles in upstate New York. That's building I-40 38 times when we had a very brief, people supposedly didn't build walls for the first three or four generations because there was wood. To, you can do 20 times the amount of rail fences. So when did they actually build 95,000 miles of stone walls in upstate New York that wasn't as populated? So when the Plymouth colonies and the Virginia colonies had 60,000 people in the 1700s, all of upstate New York had around 20,000. And that's um, uh, Roland Van Zant who wrote the Catskill Mountain House and Chronicles of the Hudson. That's where that you know number came from. So it wasn't a massively populated place in this upstate New York world. It's not like New Amsterdam downstate, but like once again, to build I-40 38 times in stone walls. And that's, 
even a low estimation. I mean, it was... And while these people are busy farming, building their houses and yeah, their other... we had a Revolutionary yeah. War. We had a Civil yeah. War. You know, you're struggling. We were... You know, people are struggling to stay alive. So that that's kind of the big kind of question. And once again, history is the study of records. So if... Indeed, people are listening and they go, oh, I know where there's some primary sources. My grandfather wrote about building stone walls. Well, that's something I would love to hear about. And I'm sure Robert Thorson and Susan Allport would also because they both all scratched their heads and like this makes sense. Yeah, couldn't find little or nothing. And then there's something called LIDAR that's being released. It's a word that means light and radar, but they're sending uh, digital uh, well, they're, they're shooting light beams down and they're recording this data so that they're going to re- they're releasing this data so we'll be able to render images of the topography and render it without trees and you'll get this image of the ground and then you can sit at home and say count the stone walls in your neighborhood um, and so that's a big technology that now people are starting to really look at and of course from the um, Eurocentric point of view, they're like, wow, we can't believe that there were all these foundations and all these stone wells and all these walls and stuff that were underneath the trees. But once you go out to the Ohio in the 1900s, the Smithsonian were reporting on these stone foundations. They were called stone vaults and they were pre-European, but um, in the Northeast, because we settled earlier, it's easier to claim it all as of European origins, but once again, these stone foundations, sure, if I came and I found an old stone foundation, I would build my house on top of it because it's already a basement. Um, so um, that's, a, that's an exciting thing that, will, that people will be able to really get a much better sense of how many walls and how much stonework was in this area and in the Northeast. Uh, in the, yeah, in the I hadn't future. been aware of that at all. Well, I wonder too, and maybe this is a stretch, but how this affects your own personal life as an artist. I mean, the little I was able to read, for instance, you have a two-story cat sculpture, apparently, that has become kind of a uh, almost a gateway to your community that people recognize the cat and cat skill. And, um, you know, if you're building structures yourself that have meaning for you, does it help you kind of psychologically relate to these much earlier ancient peoples as they build? I mean, how, how does that back and forth work? Well, it's, it's interesting because, yeah, when I got the property um, in 2006 and the first thing I did was, well, what does Catskill maybe need? I don't want to be the guy in the woods building all these clandestine structures. So I built, it's called a, the, it was called the Catamount People's Museum. And it was up for seven years. And a people's museum is anyone can go in and add something to. So what I was doing while I was building was learning from people. I didn't know who Cuz D'Amato was, the famous boxing trainer. So people were coming by and I'm like, what should be in this museum? So it was a, it was a dialogue. It was a conversation. I didn't want to be like, oh, I am the New York City artist. You know, I know it all. This is my beautiful sculpture. But this is something for everyone to take part in. And it, became, it, it, was a, it was on a vacant lot and anyone could hang out there. It was an autonomous zone. So... Um, Th- that was that was exciting uh it but then even since then i'm i'm building something in prattsville this summer uh called the i guess Zadok pratt was a a prankster so it's uh called the prankster people's museum but it's going to be in the shape of a coyote which is the trickster figure in native american culture 
Um, also, the 200th anniversary of Rip Van Winkle being released, uh, Geoffrey Crayon's Diaries by Washington Irving is in 2019, so I'm building this Awaken Rip sculpture, but instead of playing up the he's asleep, uh, he's awakened, and, and there's a nice, beautiful postscript, if anyone, my listeners, here, but it's all about sacred, the concept of sacred Manitou, and it's all about this outsider that goes up to this sacred spot in the top of the Catskill Mountains and steals a gourd that has a that has the water that's being collected in the tree, and he tries to escape, and the Catterskill Creek rises up and smashes him to bits, and it's this beautiful postscript to the Rip Van Winkle tale that I feel is very prophetic and very appropriate as people in Catskill are drinking water that's been overchlorinated with trihelomethanes and people in Athens have fluoride being put in their water, whatever, that's a whole nother conversation, but why not, you know, maybe they could have a slow sand filter put in instead of just putting too much chlorine that then mixes with the leaves and it creates this trihelomethane. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We've written about that. It's a problem here, too, especially when the the lines don't loop. It sits yeah, in there. Yeah, it, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But so the projects coming up, projects that that this this work uh, influences, uh, it, it becomes an exciting world I, to yeah, have I conversations. I don't see as one person how you can hold so many different thoughts and expertise. Where, like, tell us a little about, <laughs> where, you mentioned you came from the Carolinas, but like, where did you come from intellectually? I mean, um... I think we're it just, it's, it's amazing to be in this world where, uh, you can order any book you want or go to the library and get any information or there's this like you can go down the, that term seek and you shall find i didn't really realize but it's 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 like i, I would in my stonewall research i was really when i started getting into the water idea that these were there to hydraulically work with the landscape I mean, you just keep buying more books and then eventually you get some books about Peruvian water systems or the, you know, I mean, so as a, as a seeker, as an artist, you're allowed to, you know, go down any path you want. You don't have to, uh, you know, in my introduction, you know, I'm not a, a professional historian. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not a you know, geologist. Yeah, but you're an amateur in the root sense of the word love. You seem to have this passion for all these different things. Yeah. It's just, I'm trying to picture your life. You mentioned this discovery when you had a daughter on the way. So how old is this daughter now? She's now going to be six in March. Um, and so it was the day I brought her home from the hospital that oh. I, there was a hole, a hole in the ground that I was always like, that's clearly a trash heap or something. Mm -hmm. And it's an early picture in the book, but you know, I brought her home and I went and started like cleaning up that hole and there's these large slabs of stone and 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 then it's connected to this whole all these reservoirs and these old quarry sites and now I work up in Leeds New York and realize that the quarries you know 10 miles north in Leeds go through past my property down and they connect with Opus 40 which is this quarryman site in um, Sagardes and until Harvey Fife went to the Yucatan he didn't know what to do he was making figurative sculptures but it's like a single line of quarries that is just like heaps and heaps of stones with these beautiful reservoirs um, that 
I guess uh, north of me in Kuksaki, we have a Paleolithic flint mine, and Arthur Parker says, this is the greatest monument in New York State. This is, you know, a heap of arrowhead nappings, like flint nappings, uh, you know, and, and people try to figure how long did it take people to make these mountains of arrowhead nappings, and it kind of blows your mind, or the copper mines of um, Michigan Peninsula, it's like that copper is not accounted for. It's distributed somewhere throughout the world, but it's like thousands of years, thousands of of people. Like it's just it's, all hand mined. Yeah, and yeah, it's once again, it just blows you away. Like the whole like how long and how long were people here working the land and. You know, then you stumble into the Veda books, these like ancient Indian writings, and they talk about, you know, modern man being here millions of years. And like, you know, and there's a lot of archaeological anomalies that can support all that. And it's it, you know, I don't, I don't want to call it a rabbit hole, but it's it's this once again, the trick in life is to be in the mystery, not in the know. And it's like that's the beautiful place to be that you know, you know, brings, you can walk in nature and, uh, it's called green alcohol or whatever. When the trees, you're just breathing the air and everyone, it's not imaginary that you actually feel Feel better. better. No, I've read studies about your heart rate changing and your respiration. And yeah, yeah, there's a, yeah. Gota who, you know, um, Rudolf Steiner was very influenced by, there was a whole like way that he was communicating with nature and, you know, taking that whole thing up a notch. And then, there's the whole Gaian conversation, uh, Gaia, the Gaia hypothesis that we're living on a sentient planet Earth, and then maybe that's what the mystery schools were about, like seeing this organic light. This is a newer bit of research, but, you know, also, you know, this wonderful place that now, like, how deep do you want to find out about what the mystery schools were and what were they trying to do and this organic light that they were trying to see um, so, yeah, I'm kind of. <laughs> what a great metaphor for your daughter, though, as she grows up to hear this story about, you know, when she came home and this discovery you made. And I'm just trying to think what it'd be like growing up with a father like you. I think it would be quite fascinating. Well, hopefully everyone's growing up in, you know, in this in this new world. I mean, I yeah. feel like the, the, the new world is is, you know, I mean, back back to nature not to but just to enjoy it you know this is you know the the sentient earth it's like there's it's a two-way there's a way to communicate with it which is an exciting thing it's not just an inanimate object there at our disposal but just something that might be more to it than that with that, our church chimes are winging, so I know our time is up, and that's a great thought to end on. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.